being Empress of the French is not a bad claim to fame, but Josephine Bonaparte had a full life before she ever met the future Emperor Napoleon. This week, in honor of the 200th anniversary of her death, we're going back to the beginning and looking at life before Napoleon. Hey everyone, this is Christine, and I'm here with the newest installment of Footnoting History's Revolutionary France series. As a lover of all things Bonaparte, and with Josephine being one of my, well, top two historical women of all time, it would be horrible of me to ignore the 200th anniversary of her death. If you'd like to mark it, May 29th, 1814 was her date of death. But instead of being morbid and celebrating the end of her life, we're going to celebrate the very beginning of it. To start that, we're going to call her Rose. That's not an arbitrary decision. You see, before she became famous as Josephine, that was what her family and her friends tended to call her. Rose, since today is her day, grew up in a time before Imperial France and before the French Revolution, when the monarchs of the Bourbon dynasty still ruled the country. You with me? So we're still in the time when France had kings and queens. In December of 1779, a wedding took place in France. There were very few people in attendance, and it was not an extravagant affair. In fact, the bride and groom could not have been more different or less acquainted if they tried. The bride was a 17-year-old girl fresh off the boat from the French colonies. Born on June 23, 1763, Marie-Joseph Rose, who we call Rose and later became Josephine, grew up at her family sugar plantation on the Caribbean island of Martinique. The island had a history of passing back and forth between the French and the English. It had only actually been returned to French control shortly before she was born. When she was a child, the family's plantation suffered heavy losses during a massive hurricane. So instead of growing up in some sort of lovely house, the family lived in the upper floor of the sugar refinery, a little less glamorous than you might think. She had two sisters, and she was educated, well, you know, in singing and dancing, as much as any kind of island girl would have been, which is to say, to a lesser standard than her European counterparts. While she was never described as a raving beauty, she would forever be known for having a wonderful speaking voice. She possessed an easygoing nature with little mind for intellectual pursuits and no talent for saving money at all. She was almost always in debt. She would grow up into a woman known for her ability to make everybody feel welcome. But at 17, she was an unpolished woman. Her groom was Alexandre de Beauharnais the second surviving son of the Marquis de Beauharnais. He was some three years older than Rose, and although he was also born in Martinique, he left there when he was very young and grew up in France. He was considered handsome by many, and, like most men his age, had a string of liaisons with the ladies and a commissioned position in the army. He considered himself to be one of the newly enlightened men. He liked talking about changing the monarchy and all that type of thing. He loved political debates and attending salons, and basically he liked to feel really smart. One term that is always applied when you read about him is conceited, or if somebody wants to be a little bit kinder, they might call him snobby. And really, come on, what girl doesn't want to hear that that's a quality of her husband, right? I mean, come on. 
like a lot of marriages in the 18th century, this pairing was arranged. The marriage between an aristocratic son of Paris and an heiress from one of the plantation colonies wasn't particularly unusual. Also not unusual was that family members of the couple orchestrated the match. Rose's aunt Desiree, her father's sister to be exact, was living openly in Paris as the mistress of Alexander's father, and she was actually very active in Alexander's upbringing. Desiree saw a great opportunity to join her family with the de Beauharnais officially through the marriage of her niece and her lover's son. Alexandra, for his part, would come into his inheritance as soon as he married, which was obviously something that would appeal to him to get it really early and become rather rich. So Desiree wrote to her brother and begged for one of her nieces. With one of Rose's sisters recently deceased and the other one too young, Rose was eventually chosen. It was no secret, though, that Alexander wished that she was younger and prettier. Things never really clicked for the couple. Alexander was disappointed that his wife lacked the refinements that the women who held the great salons of Paris possessed easily. Before Rose, he had a mistress named Laura, and after Rose, he didn't intend to stop his social life. Although the pair did initially attempt to work, he grew frustrated with her not living up to his intellectual standards. Letters show that he was regularly encouraging her to educate herself, and provided lists of suggested readings. That's lovely. I'm sure those letters were a thrill to receive. You're wonderful, but, you know, you could be better. Anyway, as he saw that she was not becoming as educated as he'd like, he began to spend less and less time with his bride. And when he did, well, he didn't like that she got jealous when he paid attention to other women. In September of 1781, so almost a year after they married, Rose finally did something right. She gave birth to the couple's first child, a son that they named Eugene. Still, shortly after Eugene was born, her husband went on a solo grand tour of Italy while she stayed at home in France. But by the time he returned in the summer of 1782, he found his wife and son set up in a fashionable house and for a little bit appeared to be happy with the arrangement. Even this temporary bliss wouldn't last too long. When the time came for Rose to tell Alexander that they were expecting a second child, he was nowhere to be found. You see, he had slipped away without telling Rose and went off to Martinique. What are his reasons? Well, possibly it was for family reasons. Also, possibly it was to join in the French fighting off the English, because remember, Martinique was often a place where they were fighting for control. But one thing we do know is that when he sailed, he sailed on the same ship as his former mistress, Laura. As you can imagine, Alexandra's time in Martinique did not do well for his marriage. It was actually basically the death of it. He missed out on any military action, but he enjoyed the social life and, above all, Laura's company. But he did make time to visit his in-laws. When he wrote back to Paris, he stated his disappointment in the state of Rose's family's plantation. And although he originally claimed to be excited about the potential for a second son, by the time young Hortense came into the world in April of 1783, he was throwing around accusations that she was not, in fact, his. 
He and Laura poked around Martinique trying to build a case against Rose for infidelity or other bad behavior in her childhood. Likely it was a desire to get rid of her, but he didn't actually find anything. In an amusing twist, his own father sided with Rose against Alexandra's accusations, so even his dad said that Rose was pretty much being a good girl when she was younger, and even with her marriage, she was still being faithful. In a less amusing twist, he had Laura herself deliver one of his rebuking messages to his wife when she returned to Paris. A little inconsiderate, big slap in the face, but he did it anyway. Alexandre himself was back in France by the fall of the next year. Not surprisingly, the married couple lived separately. I wonder why. Rose moved out of his home and into a convent where she lived with other women in unhappy situations. Tired of his slights and bad treatment, while also living in a world where divorce was not yet an easy thing to obtain, she petitioned the government for a legal separation. Even this didn't come easily, despite both halves wanting it. There was a time in between when Alexander kidnapped Eugene, but Rose got him back. Finally, in March of 1785, the separation was granted. So in just over four years of marriage, Alexandra had spent less than 10 months actually living with his wife. The terms of the separation were straightforward, and they kind of sound like a modern-day custody agreement. Rose received a yearly allowance from her estranged husband. She also got to permanently keep Hortense with her, and Alexandra finally, you know, he recognized Hortense as his own because that was a battle he was going to lose. Their son Eugene was to live with his mother until a certain age, and then he would move to live with his father, but still visit his mother for the summers. Alexandra would also cover the children's expenses. For all intents and purposes, it looks like these two really should have only ever had to talk to each other again insofar as their children and finances were concerned. In another world, that might have been true. But the French Revolution had other ideas, and it saw that one day in the future, Alexandre and Rose would once again live under the same roof, only it would be the roof of a prison. Because remember, as much as they were allowed to live separately, they were still viewed as man and wife. Despite being of the upper class, it was not a given that Alexandra and Rose would end up imprisoned when the revolution began. As the tide in France began to turn against the king and queen, Rose missed the starting events because she and Hortense spent two years in Martinique. Seems to be a common theme that people run away to Martinique in this family. They only returned when the revolt of the slaves and freedmen there made it too dangerous to stay. By the time they arrived back in Paris, Alexandre was at the center of revolutionary activities. He had renounced his title and his aristocratic privileges and was working as part of the Constituent Assembly, a group formed to write up a constitution for the king to sign. He believed that the monarchy could remain so long as it agreed to follow this new constitution that would basically keep it in check, so they hadn't yet reached a point where the king had to go. The revolution, though, didn't really care what he specifically wanted, and it began to turn violent, most famously when mobs of upset people made a very big statement by storming the Bastille in 1789. Later, the king and queen were forced out of Versailles and into Paris by another mob, and that's where they were when Rose returned in the fall of 1790, so she went from one revolution right into another. 
She maintained friends in all circles and declared no strong allegiance to any of the many political factions vying for control of the country. Alexander continued being an ardent revolutionary, and as things changed, he served in the National Assembly. He was actually the one presiding over it when the king and queen attempted to escape. They were caught, and he got to announce it and partake in their interrogation. When war was declared against the other countries who supported the overthrown monarchs, he not only decided it was time to take an active role in the military, but he also voted to execute Louis XVI. So, goodbye constitutional monarchy, hello, life without a king. The real trouble began for the couple in 1793. The king was dead, the queen was soon to be dead, and the revolutionary government was obsessively trying to rid France of anyone who could be seen as a traitor. Alexandra, now leading the army of the Rhine, made a fatal mistake. When the city of Mines was under siege, it called to him for help, and he never brought his men there to help defend it, even though he said he would. This did not win him any friends, but it did gain some enemies. Soon after, he retreated and resigned from his position. After that, with suspicions falling on everybody everywhere, it was only a matter of time before he was arrested. The moment came in the start of 1794. The following month, Rose was arrested as well, after being anonymously denounced as dangerous to the Republic. The pair ended up in the same prison, which was a former Carmelite convent. Some historians say that Alexandra already began finding consolation in the arms of a widow and that Rose became very close with an imprisoned soldier, while others dismissed these as allegations that were unfounded. Either way, Alexandra and Josephine did not become a couple again when they were in prison. The one thing that did keep them together was their mutual love and fear for their children. Needless to say, it was not a very happy time for anybody there was one moment of light for the imprisoned couple. They arranged a glimpse of their children. According to Hortense, who wrote later on, the reunion went like this. One day, a woman with a letter from Josephine took the children to a gardener's cottage facing the prison. One of the prison's windows was opened and the children got a secret view of their parents. Hortense, still young, cried out to them. Her parents panicked, signaled her to be quiet, and realized that it was too late. One of the sentinels overheard and raised the alarm. The children were swept away by the woman who brought them there. They later learned that as a result of this, the window through which they saw their parents was walled up. That was the last time that Alexandra saw his children. In a final letter, he called Rose a dear friend and proclaimed a brotherly fondness for her. He asked her to make sure Eugene and Hortense were taught that their courage and patriotism would remove the smear of execution from his name. Again, because, you know, he was worried about his legacy. With that closing, he was executed on July 23, 1784. This rendered Rose a widow merely days before the execution of Robespierre brought an end to the reign of terror. Talk about bad luck for Alexandra. By the start of August, Rose was free. She was a single woman with two children at 31 years of age. She was a survivor and unknowingly on the path to becoming Empress Josephine Bonaparte. I like to think that Alexandra's Rose had the last laugh. You see, Napoleon treated her children as his own. 
He placed Hortense on the throne of Holland and married Eugene into the Bavarian royal family. Because of this, Josephine and Alexandra's blood entered into the royal families of, ready? Stay with me. Italy, Luxembourg, Brazil, Belgium, Norway, Denmark, Portugal, and Sweden. Not to mention, their grandson became Emperor Napoleon III of France. Not too shabby a legacy for Alexandra from the woman he found so lacking. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.